Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode, I talk with John Bodinger Duyarte, Professor of Anthropology at Susquehanna University in Pennsylvania, and his colleague Michael D. Joivine, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Westchester University of Pennsylvania. We spent our time speaking about their recently published book, Study Abroad and the Quest for an Anti-Tourism Experience. I'm so glad that both of you are here uh, to talk about your book, Study Abroad and the Quest for an Anti-Tourism Experience. And I think it would be helpful to start with operationalizing the entire title of the book, uh, because as I've read through it, there's a lot of nuances in in the, the, the terms that you've chosen for the title, as well as the terms for the book. And so it would probably be a useful place to begin our conversation uh, with the actual title and why you decided this particular title and then what all of the terms, particularly how you are viewing study abroad, anti-tourism, and then also experience, I think would be helpful to, to hear from you about. This originally started with a, with a AAA conference uh, panel that was really looking at I mean, I've come to study abroad within the last, say, six years as a practitioner. And a lot of the years before that, I was kind of opposed to the way that the university was established, you know, was imagining study abroad as a program. Um, but um, one of the things that really intrigued me was that study abroad students often imagine themselves as not tourists, um, that their position as students was an antidote. And so it wasn't really about anti-tourism so much as it was an antidote to tourism. Um, and that being students saved them in some way from presenting themselves as tourists, even though a lot of what they did was very touristic experiences. Um, and Michael and I got into conversation about this from that panel going forward, thinking about, well, how does that stuff kind of fit together? How do study abroad's programs present themselves as not tourist programs? How do students experience those programs, either as not tourist programs or tourist programs? How do the providers and or the professors involved with them understand the distinctions between those two things? And what does it feel like? Um, as we were progressing, we were, you know, uh, Michael was was clear on, on engaging with the whole anti-tourism kind of movement to try to make a distinction between what we were talking about and say what was going on in Venice with with protests against tourists or in, in Barcelona. Um, so we try to put those things in conversation with each other. Um, does that kind of jive with your your memory, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I come to this from somebody who's been a lifelong study abroad uh, um, participant and practitioner. I mean, my mom ran a study abroad program for a small uh, college um, where she co-directed it. Uh, I, I did it for a year uh, in college, but I also traveled with her as a kid, uh, my family. 
Um, my family's from Italy, so we would travel back and forth, uh, which is like a, another version of an anti-tourism experience. We also were very keen to be like, we're not tourists. We're like, you know, we wouldn't use the word diasporic, but we were, you know, um, Italian Americans that are coming back to the homeland. So that's another kind of a thing. And then, you know, I, I worked, uh, Heather, as you know, uh, in pilgrimage as well as in, as in tourism as a tour operator. And so, um, what I noticed was uh, in planning these uh, trips for my own university, Westchester University of Pennsylvania, um, you know, there's a lot of the same idioms, the same rhetoric, both by the students, but also, John, you know, like you, you say a lot too, by the administration and by uh, for-profit and non-profit study abroad practitioners and, 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 and um, service providers, that this is not tourism, you know, and there is, you know, a, a very long I guess, history of, um, of trying to separate oneself from what people would think of as like a more superficial, undereducated, um, you know, stress-inducing on, on host communities, uh, mass tourism. You know, this is supposed to be a much, um, you know, it's seen as a much more formative, much more thoughtful, much more engaging, and oftentimes much longer, although that's not the case anymore, uh, longer experience, very much like pilgrimage does, right? It's a transcendent, transformative uh, ex experience for, for people, not just, you know, a cruise ship that drops you off for a half a day in Venice to take pictures and come back. Um, and so I think that there was a lot of uh, uh, productivity here. And, you know, John... Uh, and I drew in a really nice, um, relatively interdisciplinary group of people. I mean, there, many of them were anthropologists, but there are some others who are not, um, who really uh, were all in some way practitioners and, or, or study leaders or something uh, in study abroad. And they all really came up with a lot of different angles uh, on how, you know, for better or for worse, they made uh, study abroad uh, sort of this kind of rhetorically an anti-tourism experience. I think that one of the points that you raise as well is that, that that became clearer, and especially as study abroad has become larger in, you know, what university and colleges offer, is this growth in short programs, uh, short faculty-led programs, so that what study abroad used to be, say, 25, 30 years ago, you go for a semester to a university someplace else, is now more, or a lot of, it also offers two, three, four-week experiences. And in that kind of context, you do deal with a lot of tourist providers um, because you're, you're the shape of your visit, the shape of your program is much smaller and much more compact, and it makes a lot more sense to go to the tourist provider and say, I need a bus to charter from here to there. And I need to be able to have a guide take us through this place. And then making the distinctions in, in your pedagogy and among your student group is sometimes difficult because your students will feel like, well, this is like a tour, right? And you're like, no, okay, we're using the providers, but we really asking a different set of questions. And that tension is, is part of what the book addresses as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, I see those and I decry it a little bit because I have an experience before going to graduate school, I was a tour operator uh, for educational travel. And so what we would do is use a lot of like um, museum organizations um, and docents uh, or alumni associations would, you know, would sponsor these trips, you know, to Vietnam, to Japan, to Italy. Um, and they would often always bring along like the curator or a professor. And so that professor would maybe give a lecture or two on a bus, or we would, you know, put them in a room for a half an hour and have a lecture. But there were more like, you know, uh, behind the scenes experiences and things, at least for hours, because we were pretty high end, 
um, you know, experiences that you couldn't do in mass tourism. So even there, we were differentiating ourselves uh, for mass tourism, but we still called it educational tourism. And so right. what I see today in a lot of these um, study abroad programs is really they're borrowing from this educational tourism model that's been around for quite a while and have gotten away from, let's say, the historical roots of, of study abroad. You know, study abroad, if you want me to go on to the historical roots, you know, study abroad, you know, has, has a very long uh, history. I mean, and, and, and it's mixed in with pilgrimage a lot, you know, um, and, and mass and in the birth of mass tourism, because, you know, on, on one end, it was, uh, I would say, would be born from, if we don't want to go all the way back to like these pilgrimages, where obviously people were traveling for meaningful, formative, transformative experiences by, by going to holy sites, they certainly, you know, really morphed, uh, pilgrimage morphed into kind of the grand tour in Europe. And this is where, you know, um, you know, uh, Northern Europeans, especially British, Brits and Germans uh, would kind of slum it and travel to the south of, of Europe, to Italy and to Greece and to Spain to kind of uh, supplement their high school education before they go on to college or even college education to kind of learn, you know, as much as they could about, um, about, you know, by being immersed in what they saw as like this, this culture of their ancestors, you know, their the civilization, civilizational ancestors. But I mean, these things were often by the upper class. They took three out three years or more, you know, you could think of Keats and Shelley and Pope who lived and even died, you know, on their programs. They met and, and had affairs with, with locals, um, they wrote about it, they studied it, they spoke, you know, Latin and Greek and, and all that, um, you know, and then we look today and it's like, you know, a spring break trip, you know, Rome, Florence and Venice, and it doesn't seem to be as much like that as well, but yet we still use that, that same rhetoric. And I think that was one of the things that we were looking at. And I know John, maybe you wanna talk a little bit, uh, uh, there's another branch, right? There's the John Dewey, the educational and learning outcomes branch uh, that fuses right. in America with the Grand Tour. Right, right. And questions of immersion, the whole cultural immersion component, right? And it's hard to really pull off, I hate to use the word authentic, but cultural immersion in a much shorter program, um, especially if you are connecting to a number of different sites that you think are important for the pedagogy of the program, um, but you're not really you don't have your own apartment, you're not with a host family, you're not attending classes in a different language, you're not attending a different university. So that immersive part, I mean, I've, I've run three short programs um, and that immersive part is, is really difficult, um, really difficult to pull off, especially, I mean, one of my programs is to Iceland and Iceland is, it's like 350,000 national citizens. And, and before the pandemic, I think it was 2.2 million tourists um, per year at the high point and trying to distinguish and, and differentiate between a tourist experience and an Icelandic experience and what Iceland really was, which kind of like what Iceland really is right now is a tourist hotspot and putting that into a pedagogical frame. I'm kind of like saying, okay, part of what we're going to be studying here is the advent of tourism itself, right? Um, and that's sometimes a way to kind of continue with a critical component even though you're kind of a wash in tourism. 
Yeah, I love that. That it's like a, you know, uh, why don't we just capitalize on the fact that we are kind of tourists and 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 be ethnographers of of tourism. I mean, that's really how I wrote my first book, uh, The Heritage Scape, was I was being a tour operator and I took really copious notes and, um, you know, that was all based on my experiences of tourism. And consequently, that was a book about the, the tourist practitioners and UNESCO and those people rather than the locals, right? Because I wasn't like living with the locals, but I was going repeatedly back and forth to these same places. And that was different than say when I uh, do my work on pilgrimage, on Padre Pio pilgrimages where I lived in my parents' hometown, my mom's hometown and in Italy and, and lived like a local and kind of experienced it that way. But it's great, you know, I mean, John, you and I are ethnographers. And so, you know, participant observation is key. And if you're participating in tourism, what better pedagogical way to do it than to just study the tourism, be, yeah. you know, go all in on that. Yeah. Yeah, which is a difficult kind of a kind of uh, margin to cut with the students, right? Because the students don't quite have enough theoretical distance to understand their subject position as both students and tourists. So when you're raising questions about tourism for them and saying, okay, let's observe how tourism works here, sometimes it's difficult for them to separate themselves from the experience. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But you know, teaching is difficult. You know. <laughs> yeah. It, it, uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about what the study abroad experience is not. And, and I, can you offer thoughts about what a tour, a tourist is uh, so that we can then sort of frame this going forward as sort of the antithesis of that? Sure. Uh, to, uh, you know, the, the UN, I'm like pulling up my book here, just the book, but no, but, but the UN, um, has a definition that's often utilized in, especially like the, the, the business schools and, the, and, and um, you know, marketing school and those kinds of like, you know, more quantitative um, uh, interdisciplinary tourism studies where it's like, you know, a person who travels uh, away, let's say for no longer than a year. I mean, they make it very precise that it can't be more than a year for leisure time activities. And I think that that's the main thing. I mean, Nelson Grayburn, the great, you know, one of our fathers of the anthropology of, of, of tourism um, really, you know, would point out that this is, uh, this is already an antithesis of, uh, of daily life. It has to be in some way outside your daily practices. It's kind of a rite of intensification that can renew and refresh uh, the social order. You know, when you get, you, you need those breaks from the workaday uh, life. And so that has kind of morphed into more anthropological kinds of, um, you know, uh, definitions that are that are all over the place, um, but really talk about this idea of of itself being a meaning, you know, meaningful uh, activity. And it doesn't really we don't quantify the amount of time or how long you spend or where you go, but more about are you engaging with otherness, right? This this kind of engagement with otherness, um, you know, as, as a main uh, point and that it and that, you know, I guess, what David Picard and I wrote it in, in another book, uh, Tourism and the Power of Other, Otherness, that um, you're both kind of, you know, you're, you're spending all this time and effort and money often to go to, um, you know, experience the other, whatever that cultural other is, but it's also in a way to uh, kind of explore and play out your ideas of the other in us, right? Like, you know, who we could be or what is some of the sides of us that um, maybe doesn't get let out. And so you do get these 
you know, very interesting, you know, um, manifestations that, that anthropologists like to look at, you know, on the one hand, this, this, the other in us and, and everything, you often are trying to seek out, you know, people who look or act or behave in some way that's, you know, racially or culturally different uh, than you. Um, and that's what you're kind of seeking out these collecting these experiences, kind of like a cabinet of curiosities, you know, in the, in the old museum style. But at the same time, because it's a leisure time pursuit, uh, something that's a break, you know, a necessary break from the everyday, you can't be working. It's not like traveling for a conference or something like that. And, and actually the UN also specifies that as well. But, um, you know, it often gets this, at least this, this rap that it's a superficial activity because it's only leisure. Right. And, and, and so that in of itself is a very interesting and, and often fraught, um, you know, problematic here that, that it's a leisure time pursuit where you're trying to engage with people who are different than you. And you don't really have that information. It's not your business to do that or be there. Uh, and, and so you get these very interesting, um, you know, outcomes. It's also an opportunity for acting out. And unfortunately, some of the ways that the students act out on their programs is problematic. But again, to experience the otherness in you is, is sort of sometimes goes into hedonism or, or whatever. Um, those sorts of things that we try to police on a program up to an extent, but not, you know, not completely because we can't. So the way that students think about, or sometimes, I mean, you know, 20 year olds think about how to bring out the other in themselves or to experience or to be people that they aren't normally when they're in their workaday selves is, is following along those lines as well. Um, so some of that is just kind of like tried and true, cross-cultural, let's go out and party kind of stuff um, layered over with, yeah, okay, so I got drunk in Reykjavik, but I got drunk with Icelanders. So it's a cross-cultural experience. and. <laughs> You're not wrong, you know, um, but that's not necessarily, say, the, the, the focus of the program. It's not um, your learning outcome to get everybody drunk. Exactly. Right, Vic? Okay. The learning outcome is connected to a hangover. Um, <laughs> I mean, I would go back almost to like Valene Smith, who, who, who uh, talks about tourism and says, I pulled up the documents, so I'll just go ahead and quote, a tourist is a temporarily leisured person who voluntarily visits a place away from home for the purpose of experiencing a change. Mm -hmm. Right. Pretty broad. Um, but still, I mean, that's that's a pretty functional um, understanding of tourism. Yeah. And I think that's the other dynamic. I'm glad you mentioned it because it has to be voluntary. Right. This voluntary and temporary activity. Um, you yeah. have to come back to be a tourist. You yeah. can't be an expat. And, you know, in both pilgrimage and in and tourism, you do get this interesting thing. What happens if you really like it and you, you know, you marry somebody there, you stay there. There are stories about people on pilgrimages who want to. Uh, just you need to be close to that site. I mean, very famously on the Santiago de Compostela, people want to remain there. Um, they open up host communities. So are they tourists anymore? Are they locals? They're, both, they're these liminal people. Um, but for study abroad and for other tourism, it's really supposed to be temporary and in some way voluntary, you know. Um, but then that gets complicated in study abroad, right? Do you need the, your, you know, do you need those credits? Uh, do, you, do you feel that it will... Um, that, that almost like you need to go abroad. I mean, I think we're getting away from that, especially in the pandemic, but certainly beforehand, there's rhetoric like, you know, you really need to, to do something to, you know, boost your CV, your resume. Um, having that internationalization experience is really important. Then, of course, John, your, your institution, Susquehanna, Mandates you know, requires, it. mandates it. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think, you know, again, in the in the rhetoric that you're talking about, we also have to think about this, this whole creation of this idea of global citizenship, and that study abroad contributes to this thing called global citizenship, which is profoundly underdefined, but is somehow delivered by study abroad experiences. Um, that the act that just the basic act of being elsewhere contributes to this. Um, and that citizenship in that kind of formulation is really disconnected from any kind of rights and responsibilities or even critical thinking. It's just about being someplace, um, which I think was really some of my initial concerns about study abroad as a program here was, okay, it's great that you're going someplace. What are you doing with that experience? How does that contribute to something larger? How is that folded into some kind of pedagogy and not a tourist trip or, or a school trip? Um, something different than that. But, but this university, we, we mandate a study away and we call it study away instead of study abroad because we have some domestic programs, but students must participate in some sort of study off campus, either um, at the short threshold of about three weeks to a longer threshold of a semester. We have a, um, a preparatory course that's connected to that. So students have seven weeks of either learning about where they're going, in my preparatory class, at least, engaging with sort of critical ideas of tourism, nationalism, museum representation stuff. Then we have the in-country component, and then we have a reflective um, component on the other end, where hopefully they've identified a, a study project or a research project in the very initial course that they've carried through their experience that they then write up at the end. It is marginally mapped on an ethnographic model, but recognizing that not all our students are anthropology students. I'm glad that you you segued into the idea, this concept of global citizenship, because I made a note. I wanted to check in with you uh, both about this. I, It's very nebulous to me, and yet we use the term frequently. And so... Sure. Um, in your in the 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 specific programs, um, John, that you are uh, overseeing, how do you conceptualize? What does that mean? Uh, global global citizen. What? How how does one recognize a global citizen? Beats me when you see one point one out, right? Um, partly, what I do. The programs I'm running now are, are both to Iceland and Morocco. Um, like Michael, part of part of what I also study is museums and museum representation. Um, earlier research was on sovereignty and national museums connected to tribal nations. So part of what I'm looking at is what is this formation of the nation stuff? How does it connect to you know projections of citizenship, national identity, represented national identity to international visitors? How does that connect to heritage sites or other sorts of you know heritage in the landscape sort of stuff? So for me, the citizenship component is probably more emphasized than the global component. The comparative part is definitely part of what we do, but I'd also want them to look at what are some of the represent representational mechanisms of citizenship itself? How does citizenship present itself to other people, either citizens of the nation or citizens of other nations? And how does that get articulated across a number of different fields, right? That allows us to go see it in in the marketplace in, in, in Morocco as much as in the Museum of Water or in you know other sort of trade routes or in an oasis, all of this stuff connects. Um, that's part of it. But you, the, the, the question that you raise about the nebulousness of, of global, absolutely. It's just been folded into study abroad rhetoric um, for quite a while, at least 10 years. 
as something that is achievable, something that is a goal, something that's remarkably underdefined. Um, it's just like stepping out of your comfort zone. What does that actually mean, right? I mean, to an extent, but we want our students to be comfortable enough that they don't complain about the program and reflect badly on our evaluations or anything else. So, yeah. I think the global citizenship aspect is, you know, one of these really important uh, parts uh, for the, especially for an administration, right? Because we're saying, um, hey, you know, uh, doing this uh, extends um, in meaningful ways uh, your uh, your education right and and your professionalization and and um, your comfort with interacting with uh, diversity I think that that's really the main kind of crux of of, of global citizenship rhetoric of course it, it's almost it, it's it's almost unfortunate because this idea of citizenship is like you know passports and 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 very like there are defined you know, like you said, John, I mean, yeah. the nation state, when you're a citizen of a nation state, you, you know, there's rituals involved, there's, there's legal issues involved, who can and can't do certain things. So then global citizenship, it's very much like the rest of globalization, right? Uh, where it's like um, de-emphasizing the nation state and, and somehow, uh, and, and, and geographic locations and kind of making you like the citizen of this world, you know? You even have companies, you know, that when they're taxed, you know, like I think even, you know, some of these oil companies and stuff, they would say, well, we don't need to pay the taxes because we're a global co corporation. We're not, we're not even based in America, even though it's an American corporation. And so you're, we're kind of using that same, you know, globalization kind of rhetoric to say, hey, this is cosmopolitanism, right? Because that's really where it comes from is this idea of being the cosmopolitan, being the one that's comfortable with diversity that can interact, that can, that has, uh, you know, let's say communicative competence or in some sort of competence of being able to, uh, you know, deal with lots of different people and, and, and different cultures. Um, but like you said, I mean, how do you measure that stuff? If, if, if measuring outcomes is something that's important, like, like in, in study abroad, I mean, study abroad, one of the differences I think with, with just, I, I don't want to say just tourism because I really am. I've always been a big proponent of the transformational, um, you know, aspects of, of tourism itself, but, you know, study abroad, one of the ways it sets itself apart from uh, tourism as being like this anti-tourism experience is that there are these kinds of, you know, pedagogy and, re and, and, and learning outcomes that are supposed to be met. But how do you meet, you know, uh, something like a global citizen? Does it, how long do you have to be there? What do you have to demonstrate, you know? Can you do it from the comfort of your own home? I mean, that was something we were dealing with in the pandemic a lot. Can we still meet these learning outcomes? Can we still interact with, with diversity not going abroad when, when we're in quarantine? I mean, all those, all those issues are so, it's so nebulous, you know? Um, yeah, it's very difficult to define. I think one of the things that the rhetoric of global citizenship also does, I mean, it is as performative rhetoric is that it defangs the kind of colonial um, um, history of, of tourism, right? Mm -hmm. Who gets to be looked at and who gets to do the looking. And if we present it as a, as a framework of global citizenship, it sounds like very much everybody gets to do everything across the globe in a similar sort of way. But we know that that's not true. I mean, power and privilege reflected through tourism and study abroad, college education, all the rest of that are, are the real buttresses of, of how this stuff works. And I think that one of the things that, of uh, global citizenship is, yeah, this is cynical, but forgive me, that's kind of how I'm wired, is to direct our attention away 
from the power and privilege structures that sort of inform our ability to carry out study abroad programs. Um, that's, yeah. Along those lines, you address in your book service learning, which I think also is a way to turn the gaze uh, a bit. And so I'm, I, I want to hear more about this because it's something that I have been struggling with internally uh, for quite some time. I come from a mental health background and have been involved either in with programs that have a service learning focus where students are going to another country and, you know, working uh, in an orphanage or doing something that's related to, to this idea of improving the mental health uh, of, of the local population. And it's been a big ethical dilemma for me. And I, I'd love to hear from both of you about how you are uh, addressing this, the, these types of programs. All right, well, I'll, I'll say that, um, you know, my own chapter in this book is all about the ethics of study abroad. And I do, you know, I, I, I take on the idea of voluntourism or service learning um, and present both sides, right? I think, you know, the good thing about study abroad as an, or whatever, the positive or rhetorically, the positive aspects of study abroad as an anti-tourism experience is that it's supposed to be meaningful and delve beyond the superficial. Now, again, I'm not necessarily uh, on board with the fact that all tourism is superficial to begin with. Um, and certainly if you do study abroad, if you program it correctly and you're there long enough and everything, you can delve beyond it without having to, to do service. But service learning itself is, is a really wonderful pedagogical uh, thing to do, especially in, on your home campus where you're working and helping uh, with the neighboring community. It really takes you out of your comfort zone. Oftentimes it um, instills a sense of you know service and, and, and helpfulness and shows that not everything has to be kind of monetized. Let's say you do things just for, for money. Um, and of course, there are lots of organizations from Greek life to, to clubs and things that, that, that do service learning on our campuses and do it well. Um, the, the, the use of service learning in study abroad is slightly different because it's used as almost a methodology for kind of um, making sure that students are um, you know, are having on the one hand meaningful experiences, uh, you know, there and and kind of forcing you to interact with people, you know, uh, from from the host community that you wouldn't be getting in a superficial tour, and presumably in many of these 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 study abroad programs you wouldn't be getting uh, if you didn't have that component. But at the same time, I think a lot of people who put integrate service learning into their study abroad programs are doing so for, for actually very noble reasons that they understand kind of the, the adverse impacts uh, that study abroad and other forms of travel uh, have on host communities as a temporary um, uh, you know, uh, kind of um, engagement with, with locals. There's a lot of stresses uh, on host communities. There's a lot of negative stresses. I mean, one of our Contributors uh, Jennifer Kaufman uh, talks a lot about sustainability of study abroad in a lot of her other works, um, and you know she even measures the carbon footprints and how long you have to stay in a host community in order to balance out the the terrible carbon footprint that you have by flying to let's say Nairobi from you know from Virginia or, or wherever, um, you know, and so in a way the service learning aspect is is one of those ways of like okay I know that we're generating trash. We're, gen you know, we're maybe generating some culture change, we're generating stresses on the host community, but let's try to give back. Let's try to balance this out, 
you know, but again, the problem and the cynic uh, in us, you know, and there's a lot of information, uh, you know, on volunteerism is that does it, you have to ask, does it actually really help or is it just added stresses uh, on, on, on the host community? I don't know, John, I could say more, but I know I'm sure John would love to say. John's a cynic, if you can. It's like good I am, cop, bad I am a cop. Of, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a cynic on this. Um, like you, however, I think service learning in its ideal form is good. I think that there are good ideas connected to it, and some programs are, are very, very good. Um, I think that Jennifer's work in particular, um, and, um, oh, man, I can't remember the contributors who did the program in Cuba. Um, they also had um, a service component in, in their in their work, and I think that that's also that's also valuable. I think one of the questions, and, and Michael and Jennifer both framed it in terms of carbon footprint, is also um, just what kind of real I hate to say real is just kind of like authentic here. Help are you doing if you've got 14 students, 18 students flying to Nairobi to paint a schoolhouse and then going back home? Um, how transformative is that for the host community? Would it be better off to save the airfare and the gas and all the rest of that and simply send the community the money to hire their own painters and then have leftover money to be able to hire educators or pave a street or do something else? Because the people in the community actually know what they need and want. Um, and, and having marginally incompetent, some, some students are very competent painters, but marginally incompetent painters on the ground um, painting your schoolhouse doesn't necessarily transform much of anything, but it's also connected to this idea of, of sweat equity for students that if they actually do labor in the program, that again, I mean, go back to the anti-tourism component, that again cancels out the touristic aspect of what they're doing and accelerates or emphasizes, if you will, the fact that they are actually working and they're not tourists because they're painting school or teaching English or doing something else. Um, so I think, you know, like you, Heather, I've, I've got some definite questions about who is it for? How is it framed? Does the project actually come from the people on the ground? Or does the provider say, oh, this looks like something that the students can handle. Let's go ahead and do this, work it in and talk to people there and tell them we're going to do this thing. Um, the carbon footprint part is, is pretty important, right? Especially in the world as it is now. Um, do we really want to burn all that carbon to get to a place to do this thing that may not be all that helpful or long lasting or substantive and then use it as Michael suggests as a CV builder or to be able to come back and say, wow, you know, um, I went to Nairobi and worked in the schoolhouse and it really changed my Facebook profile um, to, to borrow from like, you know, Barbie tourist or, or whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, I think you've hit the kind of the nail on the head here. I love the sweat equity uh, idea. We should have mm -hmm. put that in the book. I don't think we use that. Term, mm. But, but <laughs> Sher Sher Sherry and I worked on a, another project like that, but yeah, yeah but, it, but it's My true. Colleague. I mean, the, you know, back in the seventies, Nixon speechwriter uh, Daniel Borstein wrote this, the pseudo event, I think the book was called and he had a whole mm -hmm. chapter on tourism and he decried how tourism has become in the seventies, a pseudo event because tourism was supposed to be difficult back in the day, even the grand tour pilgrimages, you know, the idea of suffering and work, hard work to get to that transformative nature. And now, you know, it's it's five-star hotels and really fast transportation. You know, we don't even think about the journey as much, even though we say, oh, it's a journey, not the destination sometimes. We don't really think about the journey, right? It takes six hours to go to Italy, right? And then you're there and we kind of don't really talk even in study abroad stuff about like, what do you do on the plane and stuff like that? 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, so so I yeah, I see that. That's really great that that it is about, you know, uh, another way of, of positioning itself against what is seen as superficial travel is that you're actually trying to work a little bit. I think the problem is, as, as John is, is mentioning, uh, is that ultimately, uh, as, sir, as, as study abroad providers, right, as, the, as administrators, as, as professors, um, as, tour, as study abroad leaders, you know, our main um, constituency or our main focus is always the student or should be always the student. Um, and we have to deliver these learning outcomes for the student. So we have to always ethically, you know, ethics is about doing what's right, just, and good, right? And, and we have to ask for whom and different ethical stances and uh, will we'll shift who, you know, and, and, and fo- focuses will shift who we're focusing on. And here it's clearly the student. Right? I mean, we have to that, you know, we're not taking 20 students abroad to to, you know, make them sweat, you know, to help other people. I mean, that wouldn't even fly. But but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's to take them so they grow and become global citizens or they grow in learning or, 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 or whatever. So even if it marginally helps the host population, it's you know, we have to look, is it helping Right. Is it helping the student? And that's where it can get hairy. Right. I mean, you, you mentioned I think you were mentioning what was it, Barbie Tourist, the Instagram site yeah. or something, which if you check right. it out, if you haven't, um, it's a great site where but it, but it brings up a really big um, critique of, of volunteerism, uh, even more long term, which is that just because we're from America or from the, the West or from a, a higher socioeconomic and educational level doesn't mean that we are uh, necessarily equipped as especially as undergraduates to be doing the kind of work that are asked of us in a very temporary fashion. I mean, not all of us are good house builders, you know, when we, right. when we build yeah, houses. Exactly. Right. Not only yeah. just because we speak English doesn't mean we're English. We would never be able to teach English here in, in a school, if we don't have an educational background, why should we be able to teach it, you know, in Nairobi, you know, for example. Right. Um, and yeah. so, so that is a big problematic thing. The other thing though, that uh, especially my colleague, Mary Mostafinejad, um, you know, talks about a lot because she works a lot on volunteerism, doing study abroad programs in, in Thailand uh, and elsewhere is this idea that it also replicates the same sorts of, of of, of global inequalities that we are attempting to, to, to combat, you know, being mm-hmm. here, uh, d- doing the study board. You know, you're like going to give back because, you know, uh, to, to kind of right some of the inequalities that are made because we can, we are mobile, upwardly mobile people who can travel to, to places where people aren't. But at the same time, that's mm-hmm. just perpetuating this idea that we are the savior. Oh, it's Barbie yes. savior, I think is the name it's of that. It's Barbie right? savior. Absolutely. That's what made me think. In. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the savior part is is definitely a big part. There's an apocryphal story. I don't know if it's true or not um, about a student, uh, a uh, study abroad service learning project where students were going into a village to build a wall or to build a schoolhouse and that they would work during the day and then they would go back to their hotels and then the locals would come out and take apart what they had done and rebuild it because they don't know how to build walls, um, but the locals do, right? So what kind of experiences is getting connected to that? I do wanna come back to this idea of service learning, sweat equity and connected to ideas of comfort, right? So the whole um, stepping out of your comfort zone is an important aspect of what students expect. And it go on to any study abroad, you know, site for any college or university, you're going to run across stepping outside of your comfort zone. Um, but part of what drove me to this, this, this project to begin with was looking at students' reassessment of, of risk, 
and discomfort, and that they were doing study abroad programs where a lot of the risk and discomfort had been smoothed out, right? In part because we're worried about um, being sued, you know, we're worried about damaging students, we're worried about all that kind of stuff. So we take some of the risk out, we, we do risk mitigation, risk management. Um, but students are still kind of connecting that to an imagined experience of study abroad so that they are taking on extra um, sort of adventure tourist components outside of the program, like bungee jumping or skydiving or whatever. And it was kind of interesting to see, okay, so it used to be that some of the risks and challenges of study abroad were I'm in an unfamiliar city with unfamiliar food and an unfamiliar language. I have to master, you know, mass transportation system, go to an unfamiliar university, live with an unfamiliar host family, whatever. And then I need to acclimate with that somehow over time. Um, now it's just kind of like, let's pull all that challenge stuff out of the program so that the students are more comfortable, right? But at the same time, we have to write in sort of, you know, to go back to, um, to, to your experience about pseudo tourism, we build in a certain amount of pseudo risk, right? So it seems like we've got these components in the program that are a little bit more risky, but they're really very carefully managed. Um, and then students are trying to figure out, okay, here I am in Iceland for three weeks. Um, we went to the waterfall, we did this long hike. What else can I do that, that actually pushes me outside of my comfort zone? Because I've been thinking for years about doing my study abroad program, and one of the key kind of rhetorical components of this is stepping outside of my comfort zone. And if my program is designed to make me comfortable all the time, how do I do that? Um, and that's, I, I think that's an interesting component of how students are thinking about study abroad or experiencing study abroad right now. And that's what brought me to this project to begin with. I, I love, I, I think it's used in your intro chapter, this concept of staged authenticity, uh, mm -hmm. which is very interesting to me. I, it's probably what you're kind of alluding to right now, uh, where you are mitigating risks and sort of packaging something where there's enough risks so students can feel like they're having an authentic experience, but not so, so much that as you said, you will get sued or there will be some type of major medical crisis or uh, other type of, you know, accident that happens during the experience. Or we'll get bad evaluations, right? I mean, that's the other currency that's going on here. Um, we want to be able to deliver a program that excites the students and, and it has outcomes, as Michael suggested. And at the same time, we're in this whole neoliberal educational marketplace where evaluations for what we deliver is a component of how we're evaluated. Um, well, that was a redundant sentence, I'm sorry. Evaluations are part of how we were evaluated, but still. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and again, the other the other thing, not to not to, to move over your, your question, Heather, but, but the other part of what John was saying is that we, in many ways, are constrained to make sure that there aren't any real risks uh, involved, not just because they're gonna evaluate it poorly, perhaps, if, if they're too much out of their comfort zone, but we wouldn't be able to be allowed to run our programs if it was too risky. I mean, right now I'm dealing with literally an inundation, which is a great thing, uh, of students, um, most of them by word of mouth, who want to travel on my Italy program, but it's already mid-October and when we're talking on this, you know, November, um, and, and the university is still um, considering whether or not 
to run it because of COVID. And I had to write very, very long proposals with all this COVID mitigation and all these things. I mean, that's a risk, right? That is that is a true risk. You could always get sick. You could always get hurt on any travel, any, any trip or, you know, especially you could, you could get COVID here, on, you know, anywhere. Um, but uh, for this, it's like, well, we got to make sure that this is safe because this would be, it would be really bad. And it would be bad for the program as well. So there are these built in, um, constraints that we really have to have what, you know, I guess what you, what Dean McCannell had called a long time ago, stage authenticity, right? You have to make this, this risk seem to be risky, right? But it's really a front stage aspect, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so, so like Dean McCannell in, in 1976 wrote this, you know, this was a very, very important, it continues to be a very important concept. He's a sociologist that worked, you know, on Goffman, um, front stage, backstage, um, you know, uh, theory uh, that really was one of the first people to write about tourism. And he really went out and said, look, you know, tourism is all about staged authenticity. Now, uh, in talking with him, uh, s- certainly he said, I didn't mean, he, he doesn't mean, uh, he sometimes misinterpreted, I should say, to mean that people are duping, you know, people right. in the tourism that industry are that duping people, yeah. that it's fake yeah. and that they're trying to be fake which is how I read it when I was a grad student, you know, because I had come from doing these tours and I was like, this is not fake. I mean, I'm trying to get the most, as a tour operator, I was trying to get the most authentic experiences if they were duping me on one other level, but I'm not trying to, you know, do that on purpose. But I also learned, you know, as a tour operator that, that, that our providers are also trying to meet our needs. Right. And they're trying to, what do you want to get out of this? Uh, And, and then they're trying to do that for us. So for example, I remember one of my first, I think my first trip, uh, in Cambodia with a, with a tour group, you know, the guy took us to this awful, God awful, like really terrible, like restaurant with like a fake, like not fake, but it really inauthentic, like Apsara dances, terrible food. And, and I went to him and I said, Chen, you know, like this is, this is awful. Like this is not real Cambodian food. He goes, you don't really, you don't want to know what we really eat. Right. You wouldn't like it, you know, and whether or not that's true. And I've eaten a lot since then, a lot of Khmer food. Um, but you could see also the cuisine changes over time as well. So it so it did it better, right? That it was able to mm-hmm. to go into its authenticity better, but also meet the palate and the taste of, of its travelers. But what he really meant, what Dean McCannell meant, and 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 what and what I think Study Abroad is doing is like you have to deliver a performance. It, it is a performance. All travel is, and so is study abroad. Like your providers are providing a performance. You're pro- providing a performance. When we teach, we provide a performance, right? Part of that performance is to be engaging, right? And to, to try to um, extend out our knowledge and, and, ex- and, and, and life of experiences that we have to the students to have them grow and learn. But also, uh, you know, the, the, the performance is also a way that we model, right? Ourselves to, to, for others. I mean, when I do my study abroad programs, like I think John mentioned before, you know, I do an ethnographic field school. So this is about, I, I try to engage them not through service learning per se, but, but through uh, doing research, right? And again, they don't mm-hmm. speak, most of them don't speak Italian and don't just, you know, so there's all these other mm-hmm. problems with that as well. But the thing is, I also have to perform my role as a researcher and I am a researcher. I, you know, I do a lot of research, especially in tourism and heritage and pilgrimage and everything else. Um, but it's still, it's, I'm still modeling for them. I'm still performing uh, how it's to be done. You know, and I, that's really what he's what he's saying. And then the backstage is where all that 
you know, the magic really happens, right? Uh, it's, it's often seen as more authentic, but what it really is, is it's the negotiations, right? That go behind that, that produce those performances. It's the struggles often between different epistemic communities or different stakeholders uh, that really then, then show themselves and reveal themselves to, to travelers, uh, you know, on the front stage. Yeah, I mean, the backstage is also a performance, right? And sometimes part of what we, we say we're going to deliver in study abroad is a glimpse into the backstage where this stuff comes together as if the backstage were more authentic than the front stage. Um, I would suggest that it's differently authentic, right? Um, that you still have, I mean, we are performative beasts, um, no matter what kind of arena we're in, we're doing some kind of performance. So it's about shifting what the, the lens is or the perspective is or the framing is so that partly so that students can understand the difference, right? And so that they don't step away, Michael, I think from saying, oh, well, that thing was just fake, right? right? Um, because it's it's really not, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really something different. Yeah, that's the worst thing that can happen is if, if people really feel that it's that they're getting duped or they're getting like not a real experience. You, you are traveling regardless of whether it's tourism or, or pilgrimage or, or study abroad, uh, you are traveling to, to engage with the other and, and to, I think to engage meaningfully uh, with the other. And so the, I think one of the worst things that could happen is like, this isn't, this isn't real. What are you doing? You know, I travel all this right. way. Um, I remember one educational trip uh, that I, as a tour operator, uh, with with a museum and I had the two uh, curators with us and you know 40 passengers in Japan in Kyoto and um, <laughs> I love the, the assistant the assistant curator was was a Japanese American and at, we're being served by geishas and they're doing their performance and everything else and he just leans to me and he goes these aren't real geishas you know and he's like oh god don't let anybody else you know hear that <laughs> you know i didn't know either i mean right. I, I asked the jtb provide me with geisha they want geishas you know like right. you know and you know to circle back to something that you said uh michael a minute ago about uh, considering covid and, and questions of risk and student danger and all the rest of that um we are running, my colleague and I are running our, our Morocco program this January instead of in the summer. We were going to do it last summer, but obviously everything got canceled. And one of the sort of things that the study abroad program here is measuring is, well, we, there are universities in Snyder County in Pennsylvania. Snyder County's vaccination rate is about 38%. Hmm. Morocco's vaccination rate is about 52%. Right. We've got a better chance of getting sick from COVID here than we do in Morocco. Um, so again, it's another way to measure, you know, sort of thinking about risk and or contagion. Yeah, I, I literally yeah. made the case in my own proposal that, you know, the CDC threat level for Italy as of, you know, when I proposed this was a level three. Most of Europe is a level four. And like, you know, Italy and Europe would, would think of us as like, if there were a level five, they would think of us as a level five, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also yeah. in Pennsylvania, so there's another issue. But, um, yeah. you know, but <laughs> but it's so like that 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 same, like the Barbie savior, the neo-colonial kind of thing, like, well, you know, we have to assess to make sure they're safe over there. We're obviously safe here. But of course, other people are looking at us from a totally different, you know, lens right. and saying, holy God, we don't want, we don't want to have Americans here. You know, right. uh, all last year, you couldn't really travel. Uh, you know, because because it was closed to Americans, you know, uh, these, these countries. Yeah. 
I was wondering um, uh, if the if the book publication date had been backed up. I did appreciate John that you uh, have a COVID section in the book, and I and so I wondered if this just happened to work out so that there was a bit of time that you could address something that is very timely and will probably have implications for years beyond when the when the when the book um, it, it hasn't been published or it's coming out. No, it's been published. It, it has been published. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'd like to to hear a bit more about your thoughts that are in the book. And then also, we've taken a lot of time to focus on study abroad and how you both conceptualize study abroad, which I appreciate. And I think our listeners will appreciate just hearing where you're coming from. And I also want to hear more about the structure of the book and how the book came into being and what we can expect to see in the chapters and and kind of where you're going after this. Okay. Um, me, Michael, you? What, right. You could you give the like structure of the book. How about that? Because you are the, okay. the lead editor here. Um, the, so what happened, what happened was we, this was a long time coming um, and we really finished the book in 2019. I was actually on a study abroad program uh, and we were writing it 2019, early 2020. Uh, it was just ready to go to press when COVID hit and everything uh, just stopped. Uh, like literally uh, the manuscript was, 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 the proofs were all done, everything was done and, and everything stopped. Um, we were gonna present uh, it at, at some conferences, uh, you know, which we ended up doing, but it was, then it was virtual and, and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, but we took the time, you know, John and I talked uh, on, you know, on the phone several times and we were saying, you know, what could we, what could we do? Because everything is changing. I mean, you know, think about, uh, by by May June uh, into COVID in 2020, uh, especially in the tourism um, industry as well as study abroad, I mean everything was canceled. Uh, there's been the first pieces of literature were even starting to come out about how you know tourism is going to be transformed completely um, in uh, you know post COVID when we open up again. I mean you even had these um, really interesting. Um, these interesting like urban legend like you know fake fake news circulating that like dolphins were coming and swimming in the venice canals and like the sea life were returning and every the world is so much better you know because three months we didn't drive cars you know which uh, it was better but i mean that was that tended to not be actually factu factually accurate um you know so there was a lot of utopian hope but there was also a lot of uncertainty for my own university, we had by by June or July of 2020, they had already canceled the school the school year all next year, you know, all the 2021 uh, to be in person, and my my study abroad program for the next two years, you know, until this year. Um, and so we were thinking about, well, how can we better meet those uh, learning outcomes? And so what we ended up doing, and and I I really you know I really uh, liked this part was that we asked all of our contributors uh, to, to contribute, to either talk with us or, or to send us an email about how um, they were affected by COVID, number one, and how uh, they're maybe being asked to re-envision or they are re-envisioning uh, their programs uh, moving forward in, in, in the post-COVID era. And what we saw and, and what, uh, you know, another kind of confirmation of this, this strange position of tourism and anti-tourism is that it mapped out almost exactly like um, the same reactions that pilgrimage scholars were taking about pilgrimage and tourism scholars were taking about tourism, which is that there are two ends of a spectrum. There's the 
utopian kind of like everything is going to be different now and we're going to be able to be more um, sustainable and we're going to rethink study abroad. And then there's other, you know, the, the back to business as soon as we can uh, kind of perspective. And to their credit, and, and it, it was great, is that actually some of our, our own um, uh, contributors, uh, they were along that spectrum as well. There were some uh, that uh, were saying, well, we're just, we really need to make sure that study abroad is is sort of similar the way it was. Maybe it'll change, but at least we will, um, you know, we will be more, we might be more sustainable, but what won't change is the interactive part that you have to go, you have to physically go abroad. And mobility is, is another one of these key terms in our introduction that we talked about, you know, kind of the similarities in, uh, with, with tourism is that you have to be mobile, right? You have to move that part of the pedagogy, part of learning experience is, is immersion in some way and experiencing the other. But then there were some uh, contributors uh, who echoed kind of like my, the dean of the, uh, my, my associate dean uh, at the time, uh, who was asking me to rethink study abroad and do it all online and never travel again. Right, and he was saying, "Well, why? Why do you need to even travel? You know, as long as you focus on learning outcomes, you can do it from the comfort of Zoom." And and I did that a lot in my classes. In every class, I, I captured, I harnessed the power of Zoom, if you will, to bring uh, to to expose my students more than they would if we were doing face to face with people from all over the world, colleagues in Vietnam and in Italy and in Paris. And in, in Texas and in you know all places that they wouldn't have done if we you know we were thinking in a normal way. But I never called my classes my normal classes study abroad. It was a Zoom, you know. And I even had some students who when they when my study abroad was canceled, they they did a Zoom class with um, one of my colleagues in Perugia, actually one of our contributors, Elisa, uh, and she taught cooking and she did the whole thing and it was just a it was a class on Zoom and that was the closest that you could come to study abroad. But it wasn't abroad. I mean, it, it, it wasn't to me, you know. So we do have it. I think we were one of the first chapters or things published specifically in study abroad um, that looked at that those early uh, months of COVID and how things were changing and how with real world experience, people who were practitioners uh, and, and professors were impacted by, by COVID. And I'm really proud of uh, that chapter. I think, John, uh, everybody did, uh, you know, we're, we're so helpful and forthcoming and, and really did a very engaging, um, you know, an, an engaging chapter, which actually has been actually used in, in, in study abroad meetings in other universities already and book clubs mm. and stuff uh, as well, which is, which is really wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, one of those things was uh, this ideal spectrum that you were talking about was this idea of, of returning to normal. Um, and an appreciation that there is no normal to return to. No matter what we do, we're going to be in some kind of post-normal situation. Um, it's going to be different. It's not going to be ideal. We're still going to be, you know, using or, or, or um, creating huge carbon footprints, but that our experience through this process is going to reshape how we think about travel, contagion, closeness, um, you know, the density of humanity, all of that kind of stuff. Um, in terms of the structure of the book, this was connected to a number of different things. I think I said that early on, this came out of a, um, uh, partly came out of a panel that I put together for Trip Away, which is where I first met Michael. Um, and it was really kind of like looking at uh, questions and that one was, was looking at questions about service connected to study abroad, 
and how different study abroad practices might be um, understood. Um, so a number of the contributors come out of that panel and it's a fairly wide range between that panel and other people that were identified as we worked through the project. And it had a long, the project had a long toe. Um, both of us have been really very involved in it, but at the same time, also very involved in many other things. So um, what it did do though, is, is give us this kind of lovely perspective, lovely, uh, th this very unique perspective on the transformation of study abroad in the face of the pandemic and how this would take some of the questions that are addressed in the chapters and use them as potential templates to rethink re-engagement, right? Because some of the questions that come out of the chapters are very much about immersion, about food culture, about sweat equity, about risk, about uh, risk mitigation, and about access, and about global citizenship. And, and all of these together, right, um, present a, a fairly wide range of the, of the key questions, I think, in, in study abroad, delivering study abroad. So we're positioned really well to, to think about this over time as the project unfolded. And then to, you know, between the, um, the preface and the, um, and the afterward and the, the closing chapter that Michael wrote um, and the, um, the, the, the final, you know, uh, afterward, right, or not afterward, epilogue I'm thinking of, is a way to reframe those questions and, and accept, okay, the world, we're not gonna push a reset switch and go back to where we were before. That's simply not going to happen. We've got lessons to learn out of how we've been doing study abroad that have been challenged by COVID, been challenged by the pandemic, not just about infection rates or not just about casualty rates, but also about how do we understand what our impact is on others? We've got this framing of we, how do we present ourselves to others? How do others present themselves to us? But we add an extra element that our being there is potentially dangerous, not just for us, but for those that we visit, right? And I think that that really kind of reformulated or reshaped some of the questions that were, were, were really coming to the surface as the pandemic unfolded. Um, so in many ways, it was like, we were at the galleys, as Michael suggests, and then we went to this and we were like, damn. And then, you know, all this stuff feels like, you know, now it's out of step. But then we were like, no, it's not, right? This is a fairly comprehensive, wide ranging critical analysis of a lot of the different questions that come up out of practicing study abroad is perfectly timely. And again, as Michael suggests, the chapter where we where we re-engage with the contributors and say, okay, so how does this affect what you do? How does this affect how you're going to go forward? I think is is a really good set of uh, not so much guides as critical questions and thoughts um, that'll that'll reshape how we think about study abroad. Yeah, I think you know, study abroad is 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 in and of itself the rhetoric, the 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 ethos behind it is is ethical. There is an it's supposed to be a more ethical kind of tourism. It's about making people right and just and good and global citizens and all of these great lofty ideals. Um, and all of our contributors in some way uh, use their own experiences and their own research on study abroad to kind of, to kind of put that you know, out there and give kind of almost best practices uh, in a way, but also really ethnic, ethnologically uh, um, grounded um, ethnographically grounded, um, you know, ideas uh, about how uh, to plan and to implement study abroad. 
And I mean, again, like I wouldn't say that anything was, was beneficial in, during COVID, but the reset or the pause at least um, does give people pause, does give people time to kind of think a little bit um, you know, more critically about, about how they want to re-implement their study abroad programs. And even though these, these chapters were largely written, well, they were written before COVID, all of the all the things they're talking about and all the problems uh, that they problematize, all the issues that they problematize are still very relevant and in many ways can be um, even taken more seriously now that we have the opportunity and we're asked to rethink uh, study abroad, right? Asked to rethink risk, asked to rethink uh, experience, asked to rethink um, uh, critical engagement with, with the other, with, with, with other people. Um, one thing maybe we didn't even recognize as much as we do now that we are, we're certainly not post-COVID, but, but certainly we're normalizing COVID, I guess, and going back, at least in my university, face-to-face -face for the first time in a year and a half um, this semester, is that um, we do so much appreciate real meaningful interactions with people. And I think that those early questions about um, can't you just uh, deliver learning outcomes, uh, the same learning outcomes, and you know, fostering global citizenship and comfort with diversity through Zoom and, and in the comfort of your own home? I kind of think. I mean, I would like to to, to go back to, to some of these um, authors and, and ask them. Actually, we should. Um, do you still believe that, right? Because everyone is so starved for social interaction, you know. And, and while we might be worried and about the risk. Um, people really, really want to interact with people again. I see, you know, maybe it's because at least at our school, our students really didn't interact with other students in the classroom for a year and a half. Um, that it's that it's something that they're clamoring for, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see. I think we're in a constant state of flux and I think we are still reevaluating um, uh, study abroad and travel. But I think one of the big benefits of study abroad is Finally, after a while, we're able to like move around, have some mobility, like true mobility and true social interactions with others that we only had through videos and video chats and, and things like that. I thought you you did a very nice job of uh, I, I'm not familiar with the, the body of literature on study abroad. And so I thought you you did a very nice job. Uh, uh, sort of tying this to, to the to the body of literature and education, as well as in tourism, and I'm I want to hear from both of you because I, I came away from uh, from the review of the book thinking I think uh, as one of you said that this is an anthropology of study abroad. Why is an anthropological perspective, an anthropological lens, important on the topic of study abroad? Mm. Yeah, we even threw in, I think, a citation of a, psych a psychologist uh, doing study abroad as well, just for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just to build on what, what you just said about people returning to face-to-face, um, -face, I mean, at its heart, that's what anthropology is, is face-to-face -face interaction and a consideration of what those interactions entail and or mean or can be unpacked or can be the object of critical study or critical engagement. So... Um, I know if to a, to a carpenter, every problem looks like a nail and to an anthropologist, perhaps every sort of situation looks like it's begging for an anthropological sort of address. Um, but in terms of tourism, the formation of the other, the creation of the other, the experience of otherness, uh, questions of power and privilege, 
um, all of these things that get reflected through the chapters from all of the contributors seem to me to be deeply anthropological questions. It's not to say that other disciplines don't ask them, but um, especially in human to human interactions in organized groups um, to come to meaning, all of this kind of feeds back to how else could you do it, but in an anthropological approach, right? Right. I will Obviously, say you that- Obviously, a lot of different ways, but still. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think to answer your question about why isn't there more literature from the anthropological perspective though, um, you know, speaking as a tourism and pilgrimage scholar as well, I mean, there's a very, very, um, uh, uh, there's a great amount of, un of, of unease, let's say, in anthropology, at least in the past. And, you know, when, when this was just starting out like in the 60s and 70s, with even researching tourism and travel and even you know pilgrimage was a little bit beyond you know it, it looked like it was a higher kind of a thing anyway so there were people who did that but certainly tourism um precisely because anthropologists in in many ways are tourists themselves but we would never i mean just like a study abroad student never ever ever say that but where did anthropology start it was from these travelers these colonists who went abroad wrote their treatises uh, exploring the other, figuring out what makes us all human, you know, back, you know, 400, 300 years ago, these proto-anthropologists, and we continue to do that today. We travel uh, often long distances to engage with otherness uh, and then write about it in very narrative ways. Um, and, and it's not so dissimilar from journalism uh, and it's not so dissimilar from travel writing. Um, and, and so anthropologists were very loath to, to even talk about uh, their, even talk about tourists in their field sites. Um, Ed Brunner, who had just passed away a, a little over a year ago, uh, another book in this series, um, you know, uh, that our book is published in, which is full disclosure, is, is, is my tourism, anthropology of tourism series, um, is on his, uh, his works, uh, because he was one of these major um, kind of um, constructivist theorists of the 80s of, of tourism, 80s and 90s. And I mean, he tells these stories about going as uh, running a study abroad program, actually, with Barbara Kirsten Black Gimlet, a semester at sea kind of study abroad program, and going to his field site, taking students to his field site uh, in Indonesia, uh, where uh, Clifford and, and Hilda Gertz. Uh, were these great anthropologists, also just uh, Clifford Geertz just passed away a couple of years ago uh, from Princeton, uh, they wouldn't even talk to him when he was with his students. You know, they would pretend they weren't even there. Uh, and when they would write their, and not just the Geertz, but even um, people who were studying Native North America, when they would write their early um, works on Native North America or Indonesia or wherever, these anthropologists wouldn't uh, mentioned the fact that there were tourists there all the time. There were there were other leisure travelers who were Amer you know white Americans that were traveling around there and impacting the culture. And yet they talked about it as if this was a, herme a hermetically sealed um, you know culture that didn't have these other interactions. And and so gradually in you know as we pushed and pushed as anthropologists of tourism and travel, we kind of pushed the envelope to the point that now I mean we're really happy that um, we can um, talk about and research uh, tourism in a way that isn't looked down upon by the rest of the mainstream. And this is, uh, you know, actually a relatively recent occurrence. I remember after doing my, being a tour operator, I went back to University of Chicago and, and did, um, you know, I, I was doing my master's uh, before I went into PhD program at University of Chicago and I wrote the first book. And um, I asked 
actually um, the, 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 the director of the master's program, who's a great guy, um, uh, and, and I said, well, why didn't I get into the PhD program right away? You know, and I had, by the way, never studied anthropology before in undergrad in my life. Uh, and, and he said, well, you do tourism. Nobody wants to hear about that hippy dippy shit. Right. And what was really funny, and that's, that's a direct quote. And what's really funny is he is a scholar of sports and Olympic games. So there is also not too much, um, difference right. with what he was studying, but there was, you know, the sport, it was like, you know, very Olympics, it's nationalism and all these things. And to him and to many people at the time, it, you know, leading up in nineties, you know, was, uh, this idea that, well, this is just leisure travel. This is, this is tourism, mm -hmm. not anything really important. And so I think that's also why study abroad, you know, there's a lot of education literature. There's a lot of language education literature. There's a lot of even psychological literature because of, you know, dealing with culture shock and, and, and reverse culture shock and things like that. But anthropologically, you know, we want to distance ourselves. When I when we take students abroad, we're doing ethnography with them. We're not doing study abroad with them. You know, so I think that there's mm -hmm. there's also disciplinary differences there. Yeah. Who who was your target? Who's the target audience that you had in mind? Your readership for this book. I mean, I'm thinking of a number of different. I mean, it's it's quite applied as well. I mean, in addition to to those people who are researching the study abroad phenomenon or study abroad experiences, I think that it, it's been very helpful for, I don't study study abroad, but it was very helpful in orienting me to, to study abroad and to where the literature is now. And, and <clears throat> the chapters are very helpful to ground the, the ideas around study abroad. So I think there is quite an applied focus here as well. Is that what you were thinking when you, when you set out to publish the book? I think a mixture between applied and theoretical, really. Um, so as, as an aid to people that were already doing this kind of work to think maybe about through questions that were either troubling them or you know, hadn't occurred to them yet, um, there are some practical components in there, obviously questions about what are relationships to our people on the ground, for example. Um, how do we affect you know small economies? What what is what is that kind of give and take there? That that's also important to think about. And then for you know people uh, administrators that are are focused on pursuing study abroad as an element of the curriculum or as an element of of the university or college, um, you know sweetening the package for potential consumer kind of stuff. That these are questions that we should keep in mind. Um, these are con ongoing conversations that should probably be thought of as, as you work your way through designing a program or delivering a program. Absolutely. I, I, I see this as, you know, contributing to theory, especially like you said, Heather, uh, by pr presenting more of an ethnographic or anthropological approach to this, uh, contributing also to the, the, the tourism literature um, and tourism scholars, because often they they see themselves in different silos, you know, even though officially, you know, there's really no difference in official numbers by tourist agencies, like government tourism agencies, about who's traveling for study abroad, especially short-term study abroad without visas and those who aren't. I mean, so, but there is this like, nobody really addresses the study abroad people and educational travel people as much as, you know, the mass tourism. Um, but also, like John said, really, like the people who are planning study abroad programs and the people, the administrators um, who, who aren't necessarily 
qualitative researchers or uh, anthropologists um, to kind of get another perspective. All perspectives are good, you know, and we need more of those perspectives. Um, and, you know, I know that in many ways, we, we started out this, this podcast kind of being a little bit negative um, or critical, let's say, also because the nature of the book is that, you know, how is it different? Has it positioned itself uh, different than, or an antidote to tourism? And does that really hold water, which it kind of doesn't? Um, and we wanted people to see that, see through the rhetoric and say, hey, let's be honest with and reflexive about what we're doing. Um, you know, but but there are, there are a lot of good things that come from study abroad. I mean, I myself, like I said, is am a very, very big proponent of study abroad programs. It, it really shaped who I am. Uh, it shaped who I am as an ethnographer. Um, you know, uh, it, it really, I mean, it, <laughs> I can't thank my the, the study abroad, you know, uh, creators as when I was a kid and when I was in college for, for really shaping my life. And I know that it shaped uh, some of my students' lives. I was just invited to a baby shower of two students that got married <laughs> from my program, you know? And, and, you know, so it's obviously had great impacts on, on, um, on people. Maybe, I don't know, pedagogically how much, but it doesn't matter. It's everything. Uh, it's, a, mm. it's a very holistic uh, kind of uh, impactful experience. And I just I just circle back to thinking about our contributors for the book, and they they are all deeply invested in delivering study yeah. abroad programs. Um, none of them are outside outside the glass house throwing bricks. They 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 are involved. They want to think carefully about how to improve those programs. To think carefully about how students experience those programs, but they're committed that study abroad is a good idea. Um, and and I think that that's that's also important to remember. I think the book also. Uh, it might be a bit weighty for some students, but I think students would also benefit from having, from from seeing their experiences grounded in the historical exemplars of study abroad and mm -hmm. kind of being positioned in in this world that's bigger than themselves to see where the where the these experiences have evolved over time and what being a bit more intentional about thinking about what they uh, want to get out of them or how they might be transformed in a way that uh, is more, I guess, intrinsically motivated versus extrinsically motivated by the, the professors or administrators who are leading the, the programs. That's why the chapters are such nice bite-sized chunks <laughs> and peel them off and put them in different, in different courses and, and introduce students to different questions in different ways. Right. And I, and I mean, I think that it's really important and I would love if um, at least, uh, you know, if, if you have one of these courses like, like you do, John, you know, at Susquehanna that, mm -hmm. that all students have to take, you know, that at least there could be maybe a chapter or so uh, read um, for the students, because I think what it'll do is it'll foster a greater sense of reflexivity, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes, you know, we're having these discussions as well about whether we should mandate a, a class of some sort, a pre-departure class, and then even coming back and, and having a, a post-departure, post-tour post uh, class, um, because that would make not only prime students to be better travelers and more educated and, and prepared travelers, but it gives that reflexivity. Like, let's, let's see what you're really doing, you know? Let's not mm -hmm. just give into the, you know, the rhetoric 
or the utopian kind of ideas and and see you know what real behaviors are and then we could perhaps um you know get more out of it and and i think that that that's really important no absolutely so where can we get the book? Uh, and Michael, you want to give a, a bit of a plug for your series, because this book is in a series that uh, has a number of very other, interesting um, other volumes in the series. So uh, go ahead and sure, plug away. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for plugging this here. So this is part of the Anthropology of Tourism uh, series that we have um, with Lexington Books, which is a division of Roman and Littlefield Publishers. Um, we have about, it was, it's a relatively new uh, book series, but we do have, and since 2017, it was publishing books and we have nearly 20 uh, that, that there's some on pilgrimage, there's some on uh, heritage, there's, there's language tours and there's all kinds of, you know, it runs the gamut uh, here as well. Um, and uh, this is, this is one of the study abroad books uh, that, that, that tackles in there. So you can find the book. Uh, at the Roman Littlefield website. You could also find it on Amazon and, and, and everywhere else. Um, and yeah, uh, ebook and, and hardcover for now. And if it's uh, assigned in enough classes, we'll have a soft cover and that would be great as well. You can also probably find it on the floor of the uh, American Anthropological Association annual meetings. Yes. Um, if you're so inclined. Yes, I'm sure it will be there. You just heard Study Abroad and the Quest for an Anti-Tourism Experience, hosted by Dr. Heather Warfield and produced by Jonah Bayer, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook or by email, info at MeaningfulJourneys.net, or our website, www.MeaningfulJourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.